0: If you have a Bible, we're in Romans chapter 8 tonight. For one last time, uh, I uh, really shouldn't have said that a couple weeks ago. This could really should have been a four-week study, but uh, we'll... We'll do it in, in one more night. Uh, I'm excited about this. I love this chapter. Um, I, uh, I told y'all a few weeks ago, this was probably the greatest chapter in the Bible. Uh, the whole Bible's great. Uh, even even the books that you have a hard time reading, Leviticus, uh, Numbers, some of those uh, as inspired as the others, but challenging to read sometimes. Um, God's Word is awesome, but Romans is a step above the rest in terms of just uh, the benefit that it gives to Christians, and Romans 8 might be the most beneficial, the most important chapter for a Christian to wrap their arms around, and tonight we're going to just really dive into what I think is is such an important and crucial uh, conversation about our hope as believers. Um, so we set up Romans 8 a few weeks ago uh, with, uh, regarding its place in the larger book of Romans with an understanding of Paul's our arc. So I want to remind you of this kind of framework or this uh, um, breakdown of Romans so you kind of understand where we're at where we're going over the next couple of weeks and and, and kind of within the context of the larger narrative. So first three chapters are about condemnation, that we are condemned in our sin. The next three chapters or four chapters are about justification, how we are justified by faith, not by works, not by the law, not by the religious acts of anyone, but we are justified by faith. Condemned in sin, justified by faith. And then Romans eight comes around and says, since you've been justified by faith, or therefore, since you are now justified. uh, This is what you have been brought into. This is where you have been brought and to whom you have been brought. And it is all about unification, how we are united with Christ. We are united in Christ and we are uh, unified with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we've spent a few weeks talking about what that looks like. And then in a few more weeks, we'll get into sanctification, which is the daily progressive growth of a Christian. Now, if you were to read uh, the first three chapters, the next four or the last five, uh, you'd be able to see a narrative thread from chapter to chapter. Um, but. Romans 8 through 11 are a little different and it's almost tempting to take Romans 8 and make it its own thing and then you have Romans 9 10 and 11 kind of just lingering uh, around and, and and sometimes you might not wonder what you might not know what to do with them and now Romans 8 is so big that Paul will need three more chapters to break down the different threads and the different tentacles that launch from this chapter so that's how important Romans 8 is that Paul's going to spend the next three chapters kind of going off on extensions or going off on tangents based on things that he has introduced to us in this chapter so when I told y'all it was the greatest chapter of the Bible I, I, I didn't I wasn't you know uh, uh, stretching the truth there that it launches these other three chapters that kind of expound upon what has been introduced so uh, to help simplify this I, I want to start general and then I want to go uh, go more narrow so Romans 8 through 11 is all about, and they're all about, what happens when we step out of ourselves and into Christ. What happens when we are united with Jesus on a personal level and in terms of God's greater plans as well. Um, Now, this does not really speak to the gradual growth that we have in Christ. That's sanctification and that, we'll get to that in a few weeks. But this is talking about the instantaneous transformation that happens when we put our faith in Jesus, what happens when we are saved. So Romans eight through 11 are all about waking us up to what is true about us in Christ. So now that we're in Christ, this is true from the moment that you believe, from the moment that you put your faith in Christ, from the moment of your salvation. This is about what is true about you now that you are in Christ, pertaining what happens in your heart and what your new hope is or what your new hopes are are. So uh, to show you how this fits in with where we're going over the next couple of weeks, uh, I, I want to just kind of tease this out and then we'll get back to this in a few uh, a few more weeks. But I wanted to kind of show you this in advance. Uh, Paul is going to write three chapters after Romans 8, 9, 10, 11, that I, I refer to them as footnote chapters. That is, that is if Romans was kind of like a, a paper that you would write for, for uh, you know, an essay in college or an essay in high school, that you, if you ever wrote one, you know there's a footnote you can drop down and you can write at the bottom of the page things that you mentioned uh, higher up. Romans 9, 10, and 11 are pretty much footnotes to what he has introduced to us in Romans 8. Now, you could you could really skip Romans 9, 10, and 11. You could go straight from 8 to 12 and you wouldn't really miss anything. Now, we're not going to do that. And of course, the Bible doesn't do that. But if you were just, if I was if I was teaching elementary Bible students, if, if I was teaching people that don't know anything about the Bible or anything about Christianity, my temptation as a pastor in terms of trying to get people to see the practical steps to take, my temptation would be to go from Romans 8 to Romans 12 and, and really not get into the 9, 10, and 11. But, but since y'all are Bible scholars because you attend church on a Wednesday evening in 2022, which means you're up there in terms of your love for the Bible. That means y'all can handle more. Uh, so we're we're not going to avoid what comes next. So uh, you could almost look at it this way. Romans 8 is the heading. So the heading is Romans 8, new heart, new hope. And then the bullets underneath Romans 8 are these concepts that have been introduced to us in that chapter, but are then fleshed out in a more thorough way. So just a preview of where we're going. Romans 9 is all about God's sovereignty. Now, if you were here with us for the first study in Romans 8, we talked about how salvation is a work of God. God does the work. God makes the decision. God is the one who moves us out of sin into Christ. Well, Romans 9 is all about the sovereignty of God, how God makes choices for us, how God makes decisions that impact the rest of the world, how God is in control. So if you want more of that, Romans 9 is your chapter. Romans 10 is about our free will. So we, we see these two big theological concepts, God's sovereignty and human will. God's, God's uh, you know, uh, desire or God's determination to make decisions, predestination, things like that. God's sovereignty, Romans 9, and then our free will, Romans 10. So yes, God is making the decisions. Yes, God is the ultimate mover. Yes, God is in control, but you and I have a choice to make and you and I have decisions to make. So Romans 10 is going to flip the coin over. Romans 9 is one side of the coin. Romans 10 is the other side of the coin. We have a free will and that's an important thing for us to talk about. And then Romans 11 is about God's eschatological plan. Now that word's a big word that means the last days. If you've ever seen eschatology in a Bible, in a study Bible or in a Bible study, um, eschatology is the study of the last days, just like theology is the study of God eschatology or eschatological is God's plan for the end. So uh, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about these big kind of, you know, uh, 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 theological concepts that you all can handle because again, you are Bible scholars. You study the Bible more than most people do. So you all, I think, will enjoy this thoroughly. And uh, we've already touched on these in, in, in brevity throughout our study in Romans 8. And we're going to get into a little bit of the last one in our study tonight. But I wanted to show you that and throw that out there for you so you can kind of have that in the back of your mind as you begin to read Romans 9. Because Romans 9 is a difficult chapter to study. Romans 10 and 11 are difficult chapters to study. We're not going to skip them. We're going to go through them as slow as we have to to get as much as we can out of them, and they're going to tie together really nicely. So that's for what is to come. But tonight we're back in Romans eight in a vacuum, as in we're just focusing on what is in this chapter and in this text. Um, and uh, we we said, and we we've we've deci- decided that Romans eight is about a new heart and a new hope. Now, the first half of Romans 8, which we've studied, verses 1 through 16, uh, are all about how we as Christians have been placed in Christ. And that means we've had a heart transplant, essentially. That God has given us a personal transformation, that we have been impacted individually, that we've been brought from salvation and we're being taken to discipleship. We're abiding in Christ and that's going to transform us inwardly. Uh, Now we've focused in on and narrowed in on uh, what we're going to talk even more about uh, tonight, the natural overflow of what it means to be unified with Jesus. What is our inheritance as believers? We've been given a new heart that is pre-filled with the Spirit of God. We have a new heart, that means we have a heart from God and a heart for God, as in the conversation about the Spirit of God dwelling in our hearts. Sin has been removed, sin has been washed away. The Spirit of God has moved in to stay. Now, this was what the prophet Ezekiel told about and spoke about long, long before this was ever written. Listen to how Ezekiel talked about it. Ezekiel 36, I will sprinkle, this is God talking through Ezekiel, I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all all your idols, I will cleanse you. So you get the gist of what this is about. God cleanses us of our sin. That's salvation, right? We're washed away. And this is what happens when we're saved. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And, and that word flesh, I know we think means a negative or is a negative thing, but what he's meaning there is a, it's a heart that can contain uh, true life. A heart that is not hard, but a heart that is actually able to live up to its potential. So God gives us a new heart and he puts his spirit within us. And and look at this last verse. What's the language he uses? I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So so it's not that I'm gonna give you this and then I'm gonna command you to do it. And if you don't do it, I'm, I'm backing off. It's I'm gonna give you a spirit that's gonna create in you a brand new desire. God's gonna literally move within us and calls us to be different, as in God's gonna inspire us and activate within us a brand new nature. And we've talked about that over the last couple of weeks, haven't we? Now, the language Paul uses uh, in Romans 8 to articulate and flesh out what this causing effect is, uh, he says in Romans 8, verse 12, we are debtors to the Spirit. We talked about this last week, right? We are debtors to this new spirit that God has given us. Now, he uses a word debtors that may sound like a negative thing because we think of debt as in bondage, as in slavery. But he told us in verse 15, I'm not I'm not using this word to make you feel like that you are in slavery to God. I'm using this word to make you understand just how much there is within you a desire to obey God, as in he is causing you to be more sensitive to him than you are to sin and to your flesh. And and, and that's why he uses the word in verse 16 or verse 15. He says, you have not been put back into bondage, but you have been adopted. So you have been literally brought into the family of God. And being a part of this family, yes, there are things expected of you, but in the family of God, it's not just about expectations, it's about the ability that God has put in you. It's about the nature that God has put in you. So we are debtors emphasizes that strong uh, transformation that's happened within us. There is something within us that is pushing us in a very specific direction. Now, you know, Jesus and Peter used the word, I must, it is necessary to obey God as in something in them would not let them settle for something less. So our new heart, brings with it a sort of spiritual tether, the idea of being tethered to something. So with your new heart, there is a tether attached to you that God in his spirit has tethered you to a, to a desire, to this compulsion that is leading you and that is you know, intending for you to walk in a certain way. Now, we kind of came to this conclusion last week. Uh, that this is the immediate effect of the tether and bondage to the spirit that Paul's talking about. So the question I believe the spirit of God is speaking to us from this text is are we allowing and seeking and facilitating the Holy Spirit's desire and intent and ability to work in us? So that's what I think we have to ask ourselves at this point in Romans 8. This is our reality. You as a Christian... You did not earn it. You didn't deserve it. You didn't work for it. You were given a new heart. Every believer, every born again Christian, you have been given a new heart. And in that new heart has brought with it the spirit of God. He said in verse 11, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the grave is in you. God, not just with you, but within you. There is a spiritual tether." to every one of us. So the question is, are we living by this new reality? In this new reality, has this new heart and this new presence transformed our lives? That's a big question that we as Christians must ask ourselves every single day. Now, tonight our time in Romans 8, it's gonna take us a bit forward. Uh, as Paul pivots to talking about the hope that we now have as a result of our salvation. So we've talked about the new heart. Now we're going to talk about a new hope. Now, not only has Jesus changed our hearts, but he's given us a hope like none other. New heart and a new hope. Remember, Romans begins by making us aware of our condemnation. Romans 8 begins by saying that we are now no longer condemned because of what God Paul has talked about from Romans one to Romans seven. So the whole concept of condemnation uh, has both day to day and future implications. Implications for our life on earth and for the time to come. So when we hear about condemnation, there are earthly implications and there are eternal implications and how we interpret everything uh, uh, that affects our time on this earth and in the age to come. Condemnation means we bear guilt and shame in this life. Condemnation means we are at odds with God. We are separate from God. So we possess a nature that causes us to be against God. So when when the Bible says we are condemned, it means we are in a state of internal misery. We are guilty, we are shameful, and we have a nature in us that opposes God. That's what it means to be condemned in our sin, in our flesh. Salvation has taken that condemnation away. In an earthly sense, salvation has reconciled us to God and has allowed it us, in allowing us to live day to day in God's presence and under his power. Likewise, condemnation is, in, eternal, in the internal sense means that we are separate from God now, so we will be separate from God forever. If we die condemned, we die at odds with God and we spend eternity in light of this. Condemnation leads to eternal judgment. So we see what condemnation means for both earthly and eternal life. Earth, it means we are internally miserable. Eternally, it means that we have nothing but judgment to look forward to because if we live a life at odds with god we die at odds with god our eternity will be at odds with god but to reverse that no condemnation has a reversible as a, an effect on our eternal condition as it does on our earthly condition really it's an even greater effect because unlike our time on earth eternity is of course forever So no condemnation, on earth it means we've been given a new heart. No longer are we in misery. No longer are we at odds with God. We are reconciled to God. We have a new heart from God. We have a spirit from God. So on earth, no condemnation means a new heart. But with regards to eternity, no condemnation means we have a new hope. We've talked about the inheritance that we can unlock now, but there remains an inheritance that will not be unlocked until a time to come. And oddly enough, the thing that reminds us the most about this new hope, the thing that reminds us of our future inheritance are actually the worst days we have on earth. Now you heard me correctly. What Paul is gonna pivot into in the rest of this chapter is he's gonna help us understand that now that we are in Christ, and now that we are living a life with our hopes in a greater and more glorious future, that all of a sudden we have unlocked something that the, the, the rest of the world has been trying to figure out and all eternity has been trying to figure out, you and I have something unlocked for us that the rest of the world would is literally desperate for. The rest of, of all creation is desperate for. That the sufferings and the struggles of this present time, actually are an opportunity for us to have our hope in God increased every single time. Because in Christ, the things that once pointed to our future doom now point to our future glory. Because think about this. If you take God out of the picture, you take Christ out of the picture, if, if we're all condemned, and if we live condemned, we'll die condemned. So therefore, the sufferings of this present time are nothing but previews of the sufferings of a future time, right? That if we take God out of the picture, salvation out of the picture, redemption out of the picture, Christ out of the picture, the sufferings of this present time are mere previews of even worse to come. But now that we've involved what God has done, and now that we begin to see what God has done in our life and what God has opened the door for us, we begin to see an opportunity to reframe and reinterpret and, re, and have a new understanding of suffering. Now, this is important. This is, why, this is why the New Testament does not wring its hands over suffering, This is why the New Testament also does not suggest that suffering is something that Christians will not have to deal with. Of course, Christians are going to suffer because everyone in this life faces some kind of hardships and suffering. There has never been, and there is no biblical promise. And I know this isn't the most popular thing for someone like me to say, but I'm not saying this because I like it. I'm saying this because it's just true and and I'd be a liar if I didn't. There has never been and there is no biblical promise or principle that suggests that the believers, uh, believers will never face hardships. In fact, we face hardships like everyone else faces hardships, not because we're any worse or better than others, but because our world is fallen and everyone alive on this fallen planet is affected by or affected by its fallen nature. There has been a thread throughout church history to try to turn our salvation into some sort of safeguard from suffering, but that just isn't consistent with biblical teaching. Now, you you may say, why are you making a big deal about this, Justin? Isn't this kind of a dull or kind of a a deflating point to make? No, it's an important point to make if we're going to get in line with God's Word and be where God wants us to be. Just a couple of reminders. John 16, verse 33. Jesus says what may be the most uh, agree, relatable verse in the whole Bible. In the world, you will have tribulation. So if anybody ever says the Bible isn't true, or I don't believe the Bible, show them this verse and say, hey, Jesus said that. If you believe that Jesus was right about that, then you probably would believe that he's right about some other things. And I say that only half kidding. Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. And that's not news to any of us. We all know that there are plenty of trials and tribulations that we all have faced and will face. Paul says this more specifically to Christians. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. And that word persecuted can means persecuted because of our faith or just in general suffer. And then Peter said this. So we've got Jesus, Paul, now Peter, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial, which has come upon you to test you as though something strange was happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering. So what is Peter, what is Paul, what is Jesus trying to say? And what, is the, what are we gonna learn tonight? Is that the sufferings of this present time can be re-understood now that we know that we are saved by a God who literally suffered like us and suffered for us. So what the New Testament teaches and what Paul reveals in Romans 8 is this, there is an exclusive opportunity for Christians to reinterpret, reframe and redeem our earthly trials so that our future glory may be revealed and so that we may be reminded from them and by them of our hope more than they cause us hurt. Yes, suffering and trials and tribulations calls us hurt, but Paul's inviting us to see that there is something greater available. So just in essential, just as essential as us embracing our new heart that we have in Christ, we must embrace our new hope in Christ. That, that, that means our response to our understanding of the hardships this life brings they must be reinterpreted and, and, and we must embrace this teaching. And here's why I say this, very, I say this up front. Every one of us have, has, has heard and has memorized, most likely Romans 8.28. But you don't get to Romans 8.28 and you don't understand what it actually means unless you go through the verses that preceded. Very important. So look at verse 16 and 17, Paul says this, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. So what is Paul saying all of a sudden? He's talked about a new heart. Now he's gonna get to our new hope that for us to get all that God has has for us, for us to unlock our full inheritance We have got to embrace this lifestyle that will feature hardships. And we've got to not embrace them as in, hey, I love problems, but understand there is a purpose in the pain. Part of the Spirit's witness to us and within us, we understand that trials, persecution, frustrations, tests are par for the course. And heads up, if we don't do this, if we don't understand that God is at work in them, This is literally, there is literally one path we will take if we don't understand that God is at work in them. We will become constantly dissatisfied and disappointed. And eventually we will become embittered unless we realize that God is up to something in the midst of the trials and the suffering that we face. Why do you think the Bible is so emphatic to tell us to rejoice in our trials. Romans 5 did it. We read from Peter. James does it. Count it all joy. Because if we don't rejoice, we will resent. Do you hear that? If we don't rejoice in our trials, we will begin to resent our trials and resent God for allowing our trials. We will. And even more so, there is something available to us that we must, we cannot, leave on the table. That suffering against the waves of this world are actually about building up our hope. Building up our hope. Every hit from the wave reveals God's glory to us and within us. Look at verse 18. This is a monumental statement. This might be one of the most this one of the most important in terms of theological implications, in terms of what what it implies for you and for me. One of the most important verses for us to understand. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. This is a monumental statement. There are literally sermons worth of gold in this one verse. Don't worry, there's just one sermon for us tonight, but there are sermons worth I want to try to wring all I can out of this. Paul leads this declaration off with this with this Greek phrase: "I reckon" or "I consider." Now, the word there is 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 a is a statement of uh, determination. It's Paul saying, "I guarantee you can write this down because it's as good as true. It, it, this is fact. Now, this is not an opinion. This is inspired truth. There are all kinds of opinions." about why we suffer and how we can avoid suffering. But Paul says, run all those opinions through this verse before you believe anybody else's ideas. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared. Now in your Bibles to be compared is is, is italicized because that's really, uh, that's an English interpretation of what was said. The Greek phrase is literally not comparable, not comparable. And it's this little phrase, "ook." Axios, Uk which means not on the axis. Now, that word axios literally means in our English language axis or scale. And what he's saying is the work that God is doing through the trials is literally the, the axis tilts, the scales tilt, as in God is preparing something so much better. And it requires that you go through this trial so that you see the axis, so that you see the scale tilt. Does that make sense? That the sufferings of this day are not worthy. They're incomparable. They're not comparable to what God is doing in them as in wiring us to him. So our first response to hardships should be this. How much greater glory is God preparing for us? Do, Do you see this? I know this is hard. This is not easy, but this is biblical instruction. When we face a trial, Our first response should be, God is preparing something so much better. And he is allowing me to feel this trial and to feel the effects of this world so that I will know what he is preparing for me is every way possible, superior and greater how awesome is our hope in God if the best the earth can give me is this. You say, well, the earth can give us better than that. Temporarily. But when that band-aid is pulled back, this world offers us at best temporary, short-lived, finite experiences. And yes, we can put glitter and gloss on this world, but what are those but band-aids? Right? This is meant for us to put all of our hope in God. Because when the glitter and the gloss gets washed away, in some cases, that's a blessing. I know this is not what you want to hear. This is not what I want to hear. But this is, by, this is Paul giving us something incredible. When the glitter and gloss is washed away, it causes us to lean all the way into God. Isn't that the story of Joseph? Isn't that the story of Job? They lost everything except, what does Genesis 39 tell us? Joseph lost everything, but the Lord was with Joseph, as in he hadn't lost anything. Hello? 13 years in prison, forgotten about, lied about, betrayed, but he hadn't lost anything. Joseph wasn't in prison. Oh, woe is me. I should be somewhere. No, he was fine because God was with him. That's what happens when you begin to see what God is doing in the sufferings. Job lost everything. I mean, he was, a, he was the richest man you could ever imagine to be in his day. He lost his wealth. He lost his land. He lost his family. And what did he say in the midst of it all? I know my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. Job didn't miss a beat. Job, you lost everything. No, I didn't. And, and uh, of course, he loved his family. He loved his stuff. He was a blessed man. But don't you see these men had something that we don't often have? Now, I, I know this isn't popular, trendy theology, but it's true, church. We need to hear this. Now, is God good to us? Yes. Does he bless us in spite of this world's frailty? Yes, of course. But the message of the Bible is that we always live from a place where we don't shift our hope or our weight towards those blessings, lest we forget what God has truly done and where our hope should truly be. That's why the New Testament calls us to self-denial, because our temptation is to shift our hope, to shift our weight. I didn't put this on the screen, but listen to these verses from 2 Corinthians. You've read them before. 2 Corinthians 4 Verse 16, therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is renewed day by day for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding weight of glory. We do not look at the things which are seen, but the things that are not seen, because what is seen is temporary, but what is not seen is eternal and I say this because I love you, but the person you love the most, the things you love the most, the things that comfort you the most, temporary, as in the earthly way that you enjoy them, temporary. What does Paul say in 2 Corinthians 5? We walk by faith, not by sight. We refuse to shift our faith into the scene, into what we taste and hear and feel or see, because we know our hope is not there. We thank God for the scene, of course, and we enjoy it, of course, but we put it in proper perspective lest it take our hope away, out of God, into something vain. Paul mentioned in Corinthians the idea that we are wasting away, but he also says we're being renewed. And that plays into the word here in verse 18 for suffering. This is so incredible. When he, the, the word for suffering is the Greek word path metha. And, and, and literally, you, you see the word. It, it, it's a word that can also mean a pathway. That your sufferings, trials and tribulations, are a pathway to something Greater something that God is trying to show you, something that God is trying to build up within you, a hope that is not of this world. It can also be a word that we get metamorphosis from. Now, we don't know much about metamorphosis because we people, humans, we don't have this, you know, we don't don't go through this. But on the lower food chain, when insects... Metamorphosize, they enter into a cocoon or a larva state. You know, ladybugs do it, flies do it, caterpillars do it. Now, when bugs do it, and this might be more than you came for, when bugs go into metamorphosis, they literally are unconscious. That the science says that an insect does not feel anything. They literally lose their state of mind, they lose their consciousness. They are none. Their nervous system breaks down and melts away when a bug goes into the cocoon. Now, we when we're going through this transformation, when we're going through trials, we don't lose our consciousness. We are there experiencing it all. We feel the pain. We feel the suffering. We feel the transition at work. And that's why we must remember verse 18. The sufferings of this present time are not comparable to what God is doing. But what God is doing in the trials is to, ke- is to tilt our focus on him. Now the rest of this chapter is all to be interpreted through that one verse. That one verse. Now look at verse 19. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons or the children of God. So we think about what God is building up to. That word revealing is the word apocalypse. Now the world hears apocalypse and they hear bad news. We hear apocalypse and we hear good news because God has a plan involves us. 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it to hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from bondage of corruption unto the glorious liberty of the children of God. So we are a preview, verse 22, for we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now, as in the whole world is broken and the whole world is experiencing the same kind of suffering. But we as Christians offer the world a different perspective. Verse 23, not only that, we also who have the first fruit of the spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption and the redemption of our bodies. So as we go through these trials, we see that God is pushing us towards something greater. And he's using those trials to emphasize what he's doing on the horizon. Our endurance in these trials reframes our circumstances allows us to be a preview of the harvest to come. This is how we witness to our world day in and day out. We don't get discouraged. We don't get disgusted. We don't become disenchanted. We communicate a message of hope and we embody a life of endurance. 24, 25. For we are saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. Highlight that. For why does one still hope for what he sees? For if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. So is God good to us? Yes. Does God bless us? Yes. But there is nothing physical that is an ounce of to be compared to what he has prepared for us in glory. We are not hoping in something that we see. We hope in what we cannot see. Are there little nudges and reminders of what God is doing yes but hope is not what we see hope is what we see what we have in spite of what we see learning to hope in the dark purifies and increases our faith and delight in Jesus that is God's will for us every single day that we grow in faith and find our delight in him God's goals for us are not like what we often set for ourselves. What we have learned so far in Romans 8 is that God wants us in Christ in becoming like Christ. Verse 26 and 27 give us a good reminder. The Spirit also helps in our weaknesses because we are weak and we're not always going to sign up for this. We're not always going to like this. We're not always going to think of this the first time that we're going through a trial. The Spirit helps in our weaknesses for we do not know what we should pray for as we all but the spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God so this is God's will that we see what he's up to in the trial and then verse 28 puts a bow on it for and we know That all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. But what does for good mean? It's not how we define goodness. Verse 29 through 31 defines goodness for us. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, he also called. Whom he called, he also justified. Whom he justified, he also glorified. So what is Paul telling us here? What is good for us is that we become more like Jesus, that we put our hope and faith in Jesus, that we not fool ourselves with fleeting pleasures of this world, but that we be a people who are completely unified and completely united with Jesus. That's what for good means. This is God's will for us always. This is God's best for us that we follow this trajectory. This should be our prayer every single day that God works all things for the good he has in store for us. And this is the good he wants to do now and forever. Growing our affection. Growing our affection for him today and anchoring our hope in him for tomorrow. That's the good that God is working all things out for. That your affection for him today would grow. That your hope in him would be anchored. Looking forward to tomorrow. We know, we know this is God's will and there is no greater purpose than to delight in him. This is our glorious hope. This is our beautiful destiny. Now there's gonna be a whole other sermon on a Sunday morning in the days to come on verses 31 through 39. But those verses are Paul rejoicing around this, our hope. That our trials are all about emphasizing, maximizing, and highlighting the glorious superiority of Jesus. What can stand against us if God is for us? Who can be compared to who God is to us? He says, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. Nothing can separate us. From God's love. Whatever it takes to get us to see that Christ is superior is worth it. So let me ask you this. What if we reframed all of our troubles, all of our sorrows, all of our frustrations around this reality? What if the worst day you could possibly design for yourself was actually an invitation from God to grow in affection for him and anchor your hope in him? What if you begin to reinterpret every frustrating day, every difficult day, every aggravating day, every tough day, every bad day, every painful day, every struggle of a day? What if you interpret it through this lens? God is inviting me to see the superiority of Jesus. And in this day of constant sorrow, I am emphasizing and maximizing and highlighting the glorious supremacy of Jesus. And in what feels like pain for me, God is growing my passion for him because the scales tilt, the axis shifts in his direction. This is the invitation to grow your affection, to anchor your hope, We would not have any problems at all, like Joseph, like Job. We wouldn't have any problems in the midst of the worst of our problems if this was our mindset. Because we know all things are working together for good to those that love God, who are called according to his purpose, which is to grow our affection and anchor our hope in Jesus. Thank you church for being with us tonight. May we all find this growth and find our hope in Jesus alone so that our hearts might be full of this amazing good news. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the superiority of Jesus. There is no one like him. There is nothing greater than him we can be satisfied by people and by things and experiences in this world we can find pleasure and take delight in things of this world but may we not be fooled nothing and no one compares to Jesus Lord there is something for us that you want us to take tonight and I pray that we might would grab hold of this that we might would renew our passion for Jesus and we might would see him in the midst of the trials and that we might would begin to rejoice in those hardships because they are an invitation to find what's better in Christ alone. Lord, we love you. We thank you for all that you've done and we thank you for this invitation, this opportunity. We thank you for Jesus and we ask this in his name. Amen.